0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 it is on page 1233 i hope you follow along in the notes they haven't changed much since last week because we didn't go very far but he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin i want to read that wrong for a second understand i'm reading it wrong now god made a really great down payment on our sin for us so that we could afford the payments going forward And maybe at the end of our lives, we'll actually have all of our sin paid for. That's not right. That's not right, but that is what so many religious people seem to have come to believe, that Jesus did a great thing when he died on the cross, and now I can start paying for my sins. I'll be sorry for my sins. I'll turn from my sins. I'll confess Christ publicly. I'll do lots of good works. And maybe at the end of it all, God will say, that's good. You did a good job. Your good works get you into heaven. That is not what the Bible says. But so many religious people seem to think that. I'm not going to turn over to that. But in Romans chapter 10, Paul describes the religious people he was so careful to love. The Jewish people of his day, he said, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, We might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is the issue. Whose righteousness will be good enough for you to stand before God? Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, let us not be confused. Let us find such clarity in our understanding that we'll be able to express it clearly to people who are confused and help them over the hurdle of their self-righteousness to where they do submit themselves unto the righteousness of God, the only way they can be righteous enough to go to heaven, by not trying, but simply trusting, simply trusting in what Jesus has done for them. Help us this morning to understand and remember and go out of here and use your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God made him who knew no sin, we covered that last week pretty well, he was without sin. We'll look at a couple more verses on that point right now. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, this is page 1254 in a Schofield Bible, discussing how we don't have a priest that doesn't understand us. We have a great high priest, verse 14 says, that's passed into the heavens. Jesus went home to the Father, and there he passed pleads our case. He makes intercession for us. We have a great high priest in heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast. Let's cling to. Let's stand on this truth. We have Jesus. Verse 15 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows how we feel. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin... Jesus knows how you feel when you are tested and tried and tempted. He went through what you go through. He said, not that couldn't have. He didn't have a television. He went through what you went through, in all points tested or tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Maybe not with the same technology, but in all points tested or tempted like as we are, but never gave into it, never, never sinned. In chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews page 1297, toward the end of the chapter, still talking about the perfection of Jesus. In verse 26, talking about this wonderful high priest we have, verse 24 introduces him, this man, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The Aaronic priests couldn't keep on ministering because they died. They were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continueth ever, Jesus died once, and he's alive again, and he's never going to die again. He has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And he's our high priest, and then verse 26 says what he's like. Such an high priest became us this is the priest fit for our needs it's exactly what we need who is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens it clarifies it even further in verse 27 he doesn't need like those Aaronic priests the Levitical priests to offer sacrifice for their own sins He didn't have any of his own. He didn't need to go offer sacrifice first for himself and then for the people. Jesus made one sacrifice for sins forever because he had no sins of his own to pay for. He's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. (coughs) I'm I'm struck (coughs) by the two words holy and undefiled. Often in the world of Jesus' ministry, people would shy away from getting near to people with diseases. They would say, you have to declare yourself unclean. You have to cover your face so you don't happen to sneeze on me. Put a mask on. The president said so. Wait a minute, that's not them, that's now. Um, But those defiled people would defile the people around them if they touched them if they touched them. But when Jesus met those defiled people, he drew them to himself, and instead of him being defiled, they were cleansed. Instead of him becoming defiled, they became free from their affliction. Jesus took our sins, and when he's in the world, he shared his undefiled nature with sinners. He made them whole and holy, he asked several what do you want he said well if i could receive my sight and he did holy undefiled look over at first peter this is page 1313 first 1 peter chapter 2 this describes christ again verse 21 says even hereunto were you called because christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Here's the way his steps went. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He didn't set up a trick question for you. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree he bore our sins and he himself did no sin he did no sin in 1st john chapter 3 in verse 5 page 1323 it says you know that he was manifested to take away our sins And in him is no sin. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He was born holy rather than defiled. He had not the sin nature of Adam because he was born of a virgin. He did not have any human father's sin nature passed on from father to child. Jesus was the son of God. Mary was overshadowed by God's Holy Spirit and she bore in her womb an unsinful sinless son of god that holy one which is conceived in you the the luke said the angel said you know that he was manifested he came to be seen to take away our sins and in him is no sin there's no remnant of sin on jesus when he died on the cross he finished the payment for sin he didn't then have to go to hell and be punished in the torments of the eternal lake of fire. That's false doctrine. That's heresy. Jesus went to the place of the dead and then came back from the place of the dead, bringing with him all who had believed in him, I think soul and spirit, raised him back with him, took him to heaven. I don't think they have to wait for a later resurrection, but that's my opinion. I don't know if it's right. He took away our sins and in him is no sin is no sin. And then the very last part, he made him to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the part of this verse that I dwell on so very much. The second part of the great exchange, the first part, he made him to be sin for us. The second part, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In him. How did that happen? Well, the first example of it is in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, all the way back in your Schofield Bible on page 24. <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh, the word of Jehovah, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. The Lord God Jehovah Yahweh had made a covenant with Abraham earlier than this. <laughs> In chapter 12, it's described what he promised to give him. He promised to give Abram and his seed the land. He promised to give him a great multitude of family, great fertility, great number of descendants. And he promised to be with him and prosper him. And he made it all unconditional to Abraham. He just made it based on the promise of God, this unconditional covenant of Abraham. I love the Abrahamic covenant. You know, it doesn't apply to me, and yet it does, because part of it says, whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. People in the world who are not Jewish are blessed by how they take care of God's people, the children of Abraham. People in the world who are not Jewish are cursed by God by how they fail to take care of the descendants of Abraham. That might um, be important to remember in this time when the state in Israel called Israel by their own mouth, called Israel today, has had to declare war on enemies that are kidnapping women and children and showering them with missiles. I will bless them that bless thee, and I'll curse them that curse thee. And they shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But God in Genesis 15, 1 said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham was a wanderer. He was a nomad. He was like a Bedouin, living in tents, all from one end of the land of Canaan to the other. The only place he actually owned in Canaan he bought as a burying place for his family members, the cave at Machpelah. He bought it so he'd have a place to bury his dead. But the land, the whole land, from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the whole land was promised to him and to his descendants. And God says to him, while he still has no land at all in his own name, I am thy shield, and I am thy exceeding great reward. That's enough, and it includes all the rest that we said. And Abram makes a small complaint. He says, you know, uh, I don't have any children, and this steward of my house, this hired or a slave in my house, is Eliezer of Damascus, this Syrian dude. Abram said, To me thou hast given no seed, and somebody born in my house is going to inherit everything. Verse 4, The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Verse 5, He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And Abraham did not start with one, two. He, he knew, this is beyond me. In those early days, men did try to count the stars. They came up with a little over 4,000. And then one clever person took this telescope that had been invented to watch for the ships coming at sea and pointed it up. And he said, oh my, because there were not 4,000 thousands and thousands of thousands beyond four thousand of visible stars. Count the stars, they are innumerable. So shall thy seed be. Now we are much more clever than the people of Greece and Rome that counted the stars, and we point telescopes, and we're so clever, we know how old the universe is in terms of billions of years because of how many light years it is to the most distant star, And then we launch another telescope more powerful than the previous telescopes into this heavens and suddenly the scientists who look through these devices and see the distances say we haven't got a clue we're seeing things further and further and further that shouldn't be there our whole theory of how old the universe is is wrong huh. I'll let you know when I understand it and they don't The Bible says God spread out the heavens when he made the heavens and the earth and the stars and the sun and the moon. He spread them out so that I think that what we call the speed of light being a maximum has no relevance to how far those stars away are because he spread them out. He wasn't bound by his laws of physics. He spread them out. But Abraham looked toward the sky and God was saying, you're going to have an innumerable seed. And what was Abraham's response? Different than the father of John the Baptist when he was told his prayer for a child was answered. He said, huh? Abraham, Abram here, believed in the Lord. And God saw his faith. He didn't do anything. He didn't confess anything At this point, he just believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it, that would be his believing, he counted it to him for righteousness. The righteousness of God put to Abram's account because he believed in the Lord. The righteousness of God put to Abram's account because he believed in the Lord. We're going to see how that applies to us when we get to the book of Romans here in a second. But first, we're going to stop off at Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, page 766. The prophet describes this wonderful righteousness of God. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Isaiah had the picture that what he was, when he knew he was sinful, read chapter 6 and see what happens when Isaiah realizes he's in the presence of God. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. When Isaiah realizes his own situation before God, he says, woe is me. But when he recognizes the righteousness of God, put to his account, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels, God covers up those who believe in him as Abraham did, with his own righteousness. We need to go to the book of Romans to see this. In Romans chapter 1, a verse that we often recite week after week, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Verse 17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We pass from death unto life simply by faith. In chapter 3 of Romans, in, in verse 21, page, we're on page 1194 by this time, 321. <coughs> verse 20 says, therefore, summing up what came before, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. No flesh shall be declared righteous by the deeds of the law, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law, outside the law, is manifested. The righteousness of God without reference to the law. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Moses wrote of it. The prophets wrote of it the righteousness of God, not by law-keeping. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. And there's nothing after that. All them that believe. When Paul wants to say what you have to do to have the righteousness of God put to your account, he uses the word believe, and he doesn't add anything after it not believe and be baptized, not believe and confess, not believe and turn from sin, not believe and be sorry for sin, not believe and keep the Ten Commandments. No, the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. It's not that I am made righteous. If you live near me, you know I am not righteous. (laughs) But I am counted righteous His righteousness has been put to my account and covers me up as I stand before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we're justified. We are declared righteous freely by his grace because he paid the price through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I can't stop here. I didn't put it in the notes, but we have to go to chapter 4 to tie up this business about Abraham. What are we going to say then about Abraham, about the flesh if abraham were justified by works well he's got something to glory about but not before god men will see his works and glorify god but abraham abraham before god what's it say in the bible we just read it abraham believed god and it was counted to him for righteousness to him that worketh there's a reward not reckoned of grace but of debt god owes it to you but to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly and i raise my hand His faith is counted for righteousness. Abraham's a great example. God puts the righteousness of himself, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to the account of everyone that believes in him, as did Abram. Verse 6 and 7, we go on to the example of David, who describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes or counts, puts it down to his account, righteousness without works And when David describes this in verse 7, taken from the Psalms, you don't see righteousness there. You just see the sin problem taken care of. Uh David describes the blessedness of imputed righteousness by talking about the forgiveness of sins. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Jesus paid for the sins. The righteousness of God is put to the account of everyone that believes in him. And Romans 4 goes on and makes the argument even further. We're going to look on to chapter 10. I I quoted it just a bit earlier. Chapter 10, page 1203. Paul has gone away from the gospel generically and is now talking to his Beloved Israel, chapter 9, he says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, those Israelites. Oh, they, they're the ones that have the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the service of God and the promises. Uh, and they had the fathers and the best of all. Christ came through the Jews. Christ, who is God blessed forever. Christ who is over all. He is writing to the Jews in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. Brethren, in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you have to submit to be saved? Yeah, well, as far as where you're going to get your righteousness, you better submit to the righteousness of God. You can't have your own righteousness and make any progress towards salvation. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Since we're in this chapter, I'll spend a minute here He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. That's the best you can do in the law of Moses, quoting from Deuteronomy and from Exodus. But in verse 6, he continues to quote from Deuteronomy. The righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, and Paul takes a verse out of Deuteronomy and explains it. Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, he explains, to bring Christ down from above. Quoting Deuteronomy, say it's talking about Jesus coming into the world, the incarnation of the Son of God. Verse 7, he goes on quoting the same passage in Deuteronomy Who shall descend into the deep? And he explains it. That is to bring Christ up, up Christ again from the dead. Paul explains the verses in Deuteronomy as being about the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he goes on quoting Deuteronomy, but he calls it the word of faith which we preach. What does it say? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That's from Deuteronomy. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is quoting Deuteronomy, that same passage he was just quoting, And then he explains it. That is the word of faith which we preach. Paul says, this gospel that I preach about the righteousness of God being put to the account of everyone that believes in Jesus, this gospel, this word of faith which we preach, is in Deuteronomy. And he says, you've missed something. You're already having it in your mouth and in your heart, but you've missed who it's about. You see, it's in thy mouth, it's in thy heart in verse 8. In verse 9, he says, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, this word of God which you have memorized and are reciting, it's about Jesus to bring him again from the dead, to bring him down from above. It's about Jesus. You believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead. It's already in your heart the word of God in Deuteronomy. You've memorized it. It's about Jesus. The whole point of Romans ten nine is those who had memorized and were reciting the word of faith that Paul preaches from Deuteronomy needed to get that it was about Jesus. It's not a good verse for using to tell a Gentile person how to be saved. It's not a two-step salvation, confess and believe. It's just not. They were confessing with their mouth and believing in their heart. The book of Deuteronomy, they would say, of course I believe that. And Paul said, You missed that it. it was about the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So Romans 10 is a, a great passage. It's about the righteousness of God that's found this word of faith that Paul preaches in the book of Deuteronomy. We move on. We move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse, toward the end of the chapter, this is page, page 12, 13, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. All this is about being made the righteousness of God. Verse 30 says, of him, of God, are ye, you Corinthians, you messed up Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians, you are in Christ Jesus. By the power of God, of him, are you, in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What we need to be right before God, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, we have not because of ourselves, but in Christ Jesus He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I do hope you see the connection. There's one more passage that is so plain about the righteousness of God Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul has been describing his excellencies that he had as a religious and righteous, self righteous Jewish man before he was saved. Philippians chapter 3, it's on page 1259. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's one of those Jews he wrote to in Romans chapter 10. He's going about to establish his own righteousness here. Circumcised the eighth day, that's what the Jews had to do, of the stock of Israel, not Ishmael, Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, well, that's a good tribe, A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, you say, Jesus was not happy with the Pharisees. No, but it describes very righteous people, people who kept every jot and tittle of the law and their own traditions beyond the law. He says, I was one of them. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, you can't get more zealous for the Jews' religion than I was. I persecuted the church. Touching righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In his testimony in the book of Acts, he says, I live with all good conscience toward God, blameless. And then verse 7, he says, What things were gained to me? He says, That got me along real good in the Jewish world. Those things, those I counted loss for Christ. And verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. All things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now I know Jesus, and none of that that I was leaning on is any good. For him, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dung, count them but refuse, just let's get it out of the house, that I may win Christ. But then in verse 9, just in one verse, pulled out of context a little bit, what does Paul say? He says, be found in... In him, in Christ, not having mine own righteousness. All of that that I just described, it's of the law. Not having my own righteousness, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The righteousness of God. It's through the faith of Jesus Christ. It's by faith. You believe in Jesus and when you believe in Jesus, when you stand in front of God, he says, what do you see there? Paul the Pharisee? Paul says, not me. Well, I. I what, what about all those righteous things you did? No, no nothing. They're out in the, in the trash heap. Well, how do you think you can stand before me? I'm in Jesus. I have the righteousness of Christ by faith. He doesn't even have to explain it. I'm just making that up, but... God looks at you in Christ and sees the righteousness which is of God by faith. Oh, how powerful that is that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in him. Those last two words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in him, are found in so many passages in the New Testament. I wrote a number of them down here, but there are way too many to share with you all of them. we we'll look at just a few of them. In him, I said 77 verses in the New Testament contain this phrase. And you say, some, some of them just seem to mention it in passing, but it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, let's look at Romans 3.24. We just looked at it moments ago, but let's look back at it again. That's not Romans 3.24, but we'll get there. Romans 3, verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you ever go to garage sales or flea markets or things and you buy a piece of furniture. Sometimes when you buy one of those, if it's got cupboards or drawers in it, you might get something unexpected when you get it home and you open it up and find out what's in it. The redemption is in Christ Jesus. We get in Christ Jesus, we get bought back by God. His redemption is part of the deal in Christ Jesus. In chapter 8 of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I got this Christ Jesus piece of furniture here. You can't be condemned. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. In verse 39, the very end of chapter 8, verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Where is the love of God? It is in Christ Jesus our Lord, how important it is to be in Christ Jesus. <coughs> there it is in chapter 9 and verse 1. The Holy Spirit bearing he's bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. We'll just go on here. And there's just too many, too many to look at. Let's look at Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one, I think, is page twelve fifty, but I'm not sure. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22, he talks about the churches of Judea, which were in Christ Jesus. Paul said, they didn't know me. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ Jesus. They had the same position as the churches in the region of Galatia. They were in Christ Jesus. It is a wonderful concept, and I hope you'll take the time. I'm not going to go further now in, in drilling through these many, many verses that make reference to being in Christ Jesus. But we will turn the page. Sadly, I leave 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and turn the page to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Literally turn the page page 1234 we then as workers together with him beseech you that you also beseech you also that you receive not the grace of god in vain sometimes in the good translation that we use the king james translation you'll see the word together and you won't get the point this is a single word workers together we're it we'd say co-workers and then we'd have the idea but it's a we are along with him we're we're co-workers and so he's referring back i think to that business at the end of of chapter 5 where he said he's committed to us the word of reconciliation in verse 19 god did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God, we then as workers together beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. He's still writing to this church in Corinth, writing to saved people, and he's including them as part of the we, and we beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. When you receive the grace of God, you're Saved, let's simplify it. You're in Christ Jesus. Now he says, don't do that to no purpose. We beg you. We begged you that you would be reconciled to God. That's great. Now that you've been reconciled to God, we beseech you that you don't get that wonderful position in Christ for no purpose, in vain. And then he quotes a verse from Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah 49, verse 8, he saith, and then he quotes for, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation. All of that, after he saith, is from Isaiah 49, verse 8. Actually, I think I spelled it out on the bottom of page 2 and the top of page 3 in the notes. And he goes on, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to inherit the desolate heritages. After the parenthesis about receiving not the grace of God in vain, Paul says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry might not be blamed. But what's he getting at here? Why is he quoting this? Now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. I think I think these words mean the day you get saved is the acceptable time to get on with sharing the grace of God At the end of my notes is as Paul applies the old testament word spoken by the father to the son to the corinthian believers with this introductory word now is the accepted time to put purpose to your reception of God's grace. Now is the day of salvation. The lost need salvation now. We have the ministry of reconciliation to serve up now. We beseech the lost now. Whether or not you receive the grace of God in vain is determined by what you do in the now. And now, the day of salvation, is also the now when new believers should speak as well. Get in the yoke. We then, as workers together, you recall the Lord Jesus made illustration about a yoke. He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's a come to me, and I'll give you rest. That's not a yoke, that's salvation. That then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly of heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites people, as soon as they have come to him, to start being workers together with him to share this word of the righteousness of God. There's nothing like a person who has just been saved going up to the next person he sees and says, do you know? You can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. Do you know that? It's in the Bible. Can I show you? There's a fire there that will grow if we don't stifle it oh you don't want to be the first you're too young you need, no, you need to do it now is the accepted time now is the day of salvation now is the accepted time as soon as a person has trusted in Christ as Savior as soon as they have the righteousness of God because they're in Christ Jesus at that point they understand the gospel nobody's messed their head up yet It's a good time for them to begin to share the gospel. I would remind you what this is here. Here's the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. There's the incarnation, and he goes to the cross to pay for sin, and God says, I'm putting the sins, the trespasses, on him. He's... Reconciling the world to himself. He's taken away the sin problem that stood between man and God. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that me might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have sin here in our hands. Um, someone made a sin for the pastor so he could show this. And we should have it on our hand. All we Like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We all have sin on us. God hates that sin because it separates people from him. Down the years in history, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus had no sin of his own, to be sin for us, buried and rose again after he paid for sin on the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are sinners, but Jesus paid for our sin and gives God's righteousness to us, if we will just receive it. Receive him by faith. And when you do that, the next verse in the Bible says, now it's the time. Don't receive that grace of God in vain. Now, the day of salvation, it's the accepted time to be workers together, share this news, be ministers of the reconciliation of God, the reconciliation of God has done. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for taking us through this section of your word and getting us ready to go on further as we go. If there are any listening that have not received the reconciliation, have not accepted Jesus as their Savior, we pray that understand their sins are paid for and the righteousness of God will be put to their account as soon as they just believe in the Savior. Believe the promise of God that he made to Abram, and then he made to David, and he makes to each one. Whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Bless them, Father, and help them to realize the day they believe in Jesus is the day they should start repeating that message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless. We'll have church here in just a few minutes.